0: Hi, um, it's Wednesday afternoon, I guess, and I don't have college this week, so I'm able to we'll get more out. Um, I don't have anybody for the Haftarah, so maybe we'll skip that this week. Let me go to the tefillah, um, because uh, it's what I thought of, what do you call it, the fast days around the corner, right? Sarbatavis is coming up soon. <laughs> and uh, Sarbat Tavis is, um, you know, it's not a long slichus, of course, that, that it's not, but it's... Um, uh, what do you call it? It's obscure. Uh, I think we all know Sarbat Tavis the 10th day of Tavis is when uh, In the book of Ezekiel, you know, he says the siege of Jerusalem has commenced So that's where you get that from and that's usually what we associate a with You know the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem. time of Nebuchadnezzar <coughs> Excuse me, time of Nebuchadnezzar And since in the book of Yechiskal, it says mark this day O prophet. So, you know, we do but it's also true. I think everybody, or many, many, know that when you read the, the sliches that we're going to say, uh, especially the first one, which is the most famous, uh, somewhat obscure in terms of authorship, uh, it won't be in a minute. But it usually is. So uh, what I mean is, you're going to come to shul in the morning, and unless you're some strange nusach, uh, well, I don't know about this Friday. But I can't talk, but all the different Ashkenaz. You're going to see Eskrem Matsoka Shekroni Tani. It's the famous uh, uh, piyat that you say, the part of the Slichas. The, the davening is fairly short as fast days go. So you only have like three poems um, on the Slichas. That's why all everybody's got to go to work. Don't worry about it. You know, you won't get out there very late. Uh, again, it's only three Slichas. And the first one, I believe, is the most well known simply because he makes reference to the fact. And it is quoted in speeches, as I'm myself about to do, about the fact that there used to be three separate fast days, A, B, and C. And eventually they were crunched together into one because you can't have people fast three days. This is not Ramadan or anything. And so, even though there's a reason and there was a time to fast on the 8th of Tevez, and in other eras, there was a Zach to fast on the 9th of Tevez. And then, of course, there was one to do on the 10th of Tevez. But they folded all together because he on to the 10th and so when the Machaber says um I I'm sure you know this this is I'm gonna describe the, the bad things that happened to me but I had three bad blows in this month on the eighth the ninth and the tenth and he goes on to list them I got hit on the eighth slapped the right and left but I can't have a tinus of three days in a row, so altogether, from all three, I made one tinus. Now, what was the first one, on the eighth? Melch and Tzani Licht of Das <laughs> Al Gabi That they translated the Septuagint into Greek. Or, to be more exact, the King of Greece forced me to write Das Yavonis, right? They t- To write the Das, the Torah, like in Das E-Malch, the Torah in Yavonis and it was like being uh, a plowed over in my back. That's a poetic uh, uh, you know appropriation from the book of Tehillim. just to keep going and then I was always always caused great pain on the ninth. now is this the other fast day part in tremendous um, uh, humiliation the glory my glorious coat my jacket was taken off of me. What does that mean poetically that Clauly sort of lost its beautiful garment? Tarfta Nosin Mishep Ezra So that would be the death of Ezra. Hanosinim Shepher. That uh, what do you call it? Ezra was the Golodor, and uh, he gave us the accurate Torahs and things like that. Therefore, his death was a national tragedy. And then finally, Yomasiri ben Bimbuzia and on the tenth day Yecheskel Bembuzi is the prophet Yecheskel. Yecheskel Bembuzi doesn't mean he was a drunk. Bembuzi, If you look in the book of Yecheskel, God tells him, the angel tells him, Ksav Luchav BeSech Write down this day in your book. LeAm so it'll be a, a commemoration for people who are Nomics crushed and disgraced. Okay. Now the only thing is, you can't do all three. So knows you do one. One day. Okay? And he ends up saying at the end, Tavis So you see there's something negative about the month of Tavis. I got a lot of on I got a lot of blows. I'll tell him shall see. I'm sorry. And the normal derech switch no mean that's a it's a fancy way of saying that Hashem messed me over as a punishment. Pashaiti, but as all good slichos and you always end up with the following theme. It's our fault. It Notice we had terrible things, we have Tisha B'Av, the other holidays, but we caused it, not you. You just administer justice. It's our fault. I was like Ben Sarimur, I was a tuvo. I hope he shows me now good, until now he showed me misfortune. The same God who says to the sea, Stop right here. That's a pussing in the Yov. And it's very beautiful poetically because the Yam of Tsarish, get it? The wave of misfortunes. Something happened on the days, something on the ninth, something on the tenth. God forbid it shouldn't be at 11th, 12th, and 13th. So I say to you, O oh Lord, if you can cause the ocean to stop at a certain place, you can cop- You can cause the Peronius to stop at a certain place. And that's the basic Matbeya of this poem, which is one of three poems that you recite in our tradition on um on what he called on uh, tes- uh sarbatavis okay i'm fairly sure you know this to some degree or not you know i'm fairly sure you're, you're familiar with this to some degree um sorry about that now um before i move on uh, who's the author of this this is an old poem and I don't think they usually know. They just write Yosef because if you do the the of Tevis, it comes out to Yosef. But I see recent uh, scholarship has uh, ascertained that this is Yosef Ibn Abitur. Uh, that's a biggie in the uh in the 100s the late 900s. I don't know if you recall this, but not too long ago, I did a podcast about um, the son of Moshe, Hanukh ben Moshe. And uh, if you recall at all, he was the father, the son of the Rashid in Cordoba, one of the captives on the four-captive ship. And you look it up. If you're, if you're interested in what I'm saying for it, you just look at the podcast, you'll see Hanukkah Ben Moshe, and you can listen to it yourself. It's a very famous story because it's in the Sefer HaGabba, which is a classic history book written in the 12th century in Spain. So it's Seferim writing about Seferim. And in the Sefer HaGabba, they tell the story that um, there was this Rosh Hashiva in Cordoba, Moshe Mechanoch, and then when he died, he left it to his son, or let's put it this way, he didn't leave it clearly to anybody. Maybe he wasn't in a position to be such a takif. You know, the Yishiv was 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 bankrolled by all these millionaires in Cordoba, so they had the final say. Um, his son wanted to take over and was supported, certainly, by a faction. Um, as a matter of fact, when Chazdeh bin Shabrut, who was... Mr. Boss was alive, then there was no question that the son took over from the father. However, as happens, there was another guy in the yeshiva who was, quote unquote, the best Talmud of the father. So you have a classic nepotism issue. Do you go with the son or do you go with the best Talmud? Now, I shouldn't put it in that way because that's indicating that the best Talmud was better than the son. In this particular case, In the case of Hanukkah Memush, I'm not sure that's the case at all because he was a biggie also. I think it was simply the case that the guy, the the, the best student was Yosef Ibn Abitur, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Abitur. So in other words, in Gemara, in Halakha, events so transpired that he was uh, exiled from Spain, Yosef Ibn Abitur. It's a whole adventure that's described in that podcast in detail. He ends up spending the rest of his life basically in Egypt, in in the Far East, in the Middle East, I mean. Um... Because the son put him in Chirum, and the other rabbis around the world, like Rabbi Gon, honored the Cairo and so by the time it's over, this uh, he he becomes the rov in like Cairo, someplace like that, for an Israeli synagogue. In other words, Israeli in the in, in this in the 11th century sense, meaning uh, it's not Nusach Sfarad, it's not Nusach uh, Ashkenaz, because Ashkenazim were in France and Germany, and the Sfaradim were in a place called Spain. It's something called Nusach Eretz Yisrael, which means. It's the medieval Israeli minhag, when Israel was, when, when, what you and I call Israel, Palestine, was a, a province in the Arab Empire, and they had their own minhagim. Uh, I've never dealt here in the podcast too much with Israel, Eretz Israel, and others during the, uh, what do you call it, Gaonic era, which is a very unknown subject. People know very little about it, uh, generally speaking. The Gaonim get all the uh, attention, and that's okay with me, too. But I'm just saying it's interesting that Israel was not a nothing. And this Yosef bin Abitur, who is a Spanish rabbi in a, shall we say, a Muslim of the yeshiva in Cordoba, he became like the Rav. And in addition to that, he was a big python, a big poet, especially religious poetry. And uh, uh, his stuff really took off. And he's very good at it. So in other words, he wore two hats. He's Rosh Hashim material. Otherwise, this whole story I'm talking about wouldn't, wouldn't even start. So he was russian Hashim material in terms of Gemara. And in addition to that, he had to be very talented as a poet. And I'm only telling you this because this poem I just told you that you and I are going to recite in a few days, and is the one time a year, I think, that you and I encounter Yosef Ibn Abitur, because he's the author of Esker Matzoka Shikrani, Bashol Shmakat Hinkani, which is just interesting. You know, a major figure, totally forgotten today, uh, who was very impressive? He just had the misfortune of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know what I mean? In other words, he was in Lakewood. Uh, I don't know how to even say it. I'll just—he uh, uh, was in Lakewood where Baron Cutler died, and I don't care who he was. If Shneur is going to beat Dvashieva, not that there's anything wrong with him, but you know that's how it's going to go. So this guy was like on the outs, you see. And uh, it, we have a nice um, specimen of his uh, poetry. I don't think. He, offhand, you come across it the rest of the year. So um, it's just interesting that we're going to see this in this a very well-known thing. I don't think usually most people know that it's Yosef and Abitur. I believe this was discovered by uh, Israeli professors and all that. You know, these guys that spend all the time going into uh, history of these uh, Putic literatures uh, not long ago. Uh, I remember seeing that. So that, that's, that's interesting. Now, the part that's most intriguing, since Hanukkah was just over, is the part where you say that one of the things we're going to be fasting for is not only the siege of Jerusalem commencing at the time of Nebuchadnezzar, but the translation of the Bible into Greek. Melchiaven uh, in Sani licht Now understand, Yosef ben Abitur is a rabbi. He's not a historian or a classic expert or something like that. He couldn't care less about Josephus and all that business. He's giving in poetic form what you find in Shas. Okay? Shas broadly defined as Babu, Shalami, Medrash, and so forth. And in the Gemara, in Megillah, which everybody I'm sure has seen one time or another, it talks about the famous story where Ptolemy HaMalch, King Ptolemy, got the rabbis together, put them in separate rooms, told them to write the Torah up. He wanted to mess them up, that's why he put them on separate rooms uh, so he could look for one discrepancy, And uh, and miraculously there was no discrepancy. This is not as simple as you imagine. Let me put it this way. Why would you think there would be discrepancy? Uh, the answer is, this is the period of Bias Cheney. And if you're very, very from, you'll go by the Seder Olam. It's not that long since the beginning of Bias And um uh, just take my word for that. And if you're following the Seder Olam. And uh, already the beginning of Bias there were issues about the Sefer Torah. So in other words, if I found two rabbis, big chasho rabbis, and I told him write me a and you write me a they would be mostly identical, but they might not necessarily be totally identical. That's why I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Ezra Silver is famous for putting the dots above the Vaisha K and things like that, indicating precisely that there were some issues they weren't sure about, already in his time with the with the uh, uh, Sefer Torah. By Ezra's time, you no longer had the master copy of Moses. They used to have that, we're told anyway, according to the from sources, in the Byzantine Risham period, inside the box of the Arn Kodesh, in the Kodesh HaKodesh. You get it? Um, again, I'll I'll say, if anybody's interested in this subject and wants to see a uh, brief, but good essay on it, get the R.A. E. Kaplan book, uh, the Handbook of Jewish Thought, the first volume. And he's got something in there. Right? He's got something in there. On that subject, uh, I mean, he's got good stuff there. And um, you see, and in the, in the, they're talking more the also about having three farm in the SRL, you know, save his artuti and so forth. So it's not exactly totally the same. Uh, it's mostly the same, you know, I would say 95% or more the same. But, you know, you want exactly the same. Otherwise, you raise the question how do I know this is accurate? They're, these are fair questions, okay? These are fair questions. Today, as far as I'm aware, we don't have, know for sure if we have accurate. We just go by Chazaka best we can with the uh, Ben Usher codex and all that stuff. But we don't have, we'd love to have something like a safer toe written by David Amalek, You know what I'm saying? Something like, it. just, we don't have it. Now, maybe tomorrow somebody will find it. I read years ago, All for the Boss, you know, somebody buried it in a farm somewhere in Israel. Oh no, I'm just saying, we don't have it. So when it says the, the king of Egypt put him in 71 rooms, you can learn it that he was being a shmo, and he wanted to stick it to the Jews' show that your guys don't even have your own act together. Uh, and that's usually the way it's learned in a, in a from way. And the goof of the nace was that Hashem inspired them all, that they should all say the exact same words. <laughs> right? Moreover, the, the nace is even bigger because they made changes, and they all to the same changes. So remember, it says, uh and they said, and they said, So you shouldn't think some guy named Bratius created God. You know, something like that. They're more or less a whole bunch of these things. Now, if I remember correctly, the changes that the Gemara refers to that they put in the Greek translation of the Bible are not identical with what we have today in the Septuagint, the LXX, Um copies of which are pretty old I mean we don't go back that far but they're pretty old and uh, they're not the same uh, changes You understand? Uh, in other words if I remember correctly I'm not a Greek expert but I think in the Septuagint it says it doesn't say something like that it wouldn't anyway because those are Hebraisms and they're translated into Greek nevertheless the fact that somebody decided that this is a fast day Shows you that one school of thought among the Jews was: Is this a very negative kind of business? Is a catastrophic. So much so that you should make a to on it. Uh, that's what we just read, and um, you could simply say it's a from me type thing. In other words, I'm sure there are people who said when the signs, uh, when the signs out for sure, when the article came out, we should fast today. Understand? Because uh, you know, learning is the cover of the terror is gone. Like the Gemara says, if Rabbi Galil's time to, to stand up, and then we don't stand up anymore. So, because you, you used to learn, you know, just on your own without English, and now they can't learn with, with, with the, They can't do it without the English. Notice where, where's the Da'afiyomi without the art scroll? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, thus, Kansai, you know, that is possible. Um, that would represent a very rabbinical, Israeli rabbinical kind of point of view. I'm sure that all the G'dolim in Eretz Yisrael, when the art school came out, even though they took the trouble to solicit and get the Haskambas of Rabbi Yahshu and these others, I'm sure they did it, you know, with a pain in the heart and simply because he's, I guess, New America is a shwacha place, so the whole business is bit yeah, but and anyway, we got to knock out Steinsalz because he's a cuffer. That's more or less what they write in the Haskambas uh, indirectly. They, in other words, they're not happy that the art school is being translated in English, but, you know, they uh, were grudgingly willing to give the hascomah, which would school was all the counted. You know, so they had like a girl Yasha, but I don't remember who. It was Shlom Zara, whoever it was. The American Russia, she was wrote differently. And, you know, they more sensitive to the American thing, and they were more positive. And so if, if, if you think I'm kidding, I'm going by memory over here. Open up an art Gamar in the front, and they give you all the hascomahs, you know, and, and compare to Israeli ones with the American ones, I think it's, I think it's interesting, if my memory serves me correctly. Now, um, so, That's one thing. However, the, there was another, uh, and by the way, why are they against this? A bunch of reasons. But one of them since now we're in Parshish Ba'igash, the way the the Egyptians come out looking pretty stupid in the Joseph story. I mean, he moves them from place to place, he buys up all their land, he reduces them to serfdom, and he stage manages the introduction of his brothers. The Pharaoh knows he manipulates Pharaoh. Uh, you know the story. Moshe picks. Five of the twelve brothers to resent the Pharaoh. Why the five? Because he doesn't want the other ones that are their schleppers or he'll say the wrong thing or shoot their mouth off. He wants one that'll make a good impression. Jews cause anti Semitism a lot of times, I'm sorry to say. You get some idiot that will just shoot his mouth off that can make anti Semitism, whether it's in Maryland or or in New Jersey or somewhere else. So even at the time, thousands of years of Tommy Yosef. He said, this brother will be better and more diplomatic in front of Pharaoh. The other brother will leave home. You know, like that. So, the whole thing was nation-managed and manipulated in order to get Paro to agree that they should be given land and all that kind of stuff. Um, let that be. The um, the whole story, you know, is that Yosef rises to the top is not totally insulting Egypt, but it's someone insulting Egypt. And, of course, the book of Shmos is very insulting to Egypt. So, um, and, and let me say in general, if I were an Egyptian and I was reading a story in Genesis, it sounds like God caused a whole plague in Egypt of seven years of good and seven years of bad. Today, that Yosef should be reconciled with his brothers outside of tov. So, wait a minute. My whole country went through it, and people starved or came close to it. And we went under the dictatorial regime of this damn Jew. And you know, Mik Sayar I could say he put people in cities, he rearranged the whole population. In order that he should see his brother Benjamin and be reconciled with his brothers. No, the whole world, the Nile River, did not produce water for seven years. The seven years of the year. so Yosef can, can 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 you know bring his father down to Egypt. That's very insulting. You understand? Know we're getting so we're used to this. But if you're not, it's insulting. <laughs> and different Chacham never wanted this story to be translated to Egyptian or Greek, which was the language people could read. But, you know, it's, it's better to leave it as it is. But nevertheless, it happened. And therefore, they considered very bad. And I might say, if you know the history, this is, it was, the Chacham were not wrong, because the reaction to reading these stories was a lot of anti-Semitism, one might even make an argument, and not me, it's already been done, that the modern movement of anti-Semitism has its roots in the Egypt of the 3rd century B.C. In other words, when the Septuagint was translated into Greek, because it's very ethnocentric and very anti-Egyptian, it's very insulting to Goyim, it could be read that way, and it was, and the Jews suffer from this with the anti-Semitism, the racism, and all the other kind of stuff. In other words, later on many were killed because of the ill feelings Created by this translation. It's like plowing over my back, meaning the anti-Semitism that emerged from it uh, is like being plowed over in one's back and being ripped open by a plow. Uh, that's my understanding of it. It's interesting that there was a modern Orthodox take on this, which was very different. And that is that the translation of the Bible in the Greek was a positive thing. And, uh, and the reason is simple. In Schutzlords, most people didn't know Hebrew. If you didn't translate the Bible in the Greek, they don't understand it. It's the art school argument. You're going to tell somebody in Middle America or somewhere. No, you have to learn it the old-fashioned way. Well, then he can't learn it. Learn Baba Kama, you know, just Morashi tells us with the ISIS and all the rest of the old-fashioned way. The guy can't do it. Well, he says, well, then tough luck. Well, you don't want to hear tough luck. You understand? He says, I also want a piece of the action. And so the English opened up the Gemara, or 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, the Khamish, uh, the, uh, the to a much wider audience. So that's not the Israeli rabbinical perspective. It's not the perspective that you and I are going to read on in this period from Yosif Ibn Abitur. Uh, the most famous positive description of this is, I'm sure I mentioned in the past, in the pseudepigrapho which is the literature of the time of the Apocrypha, but it's not the Apocrypha itself. It's a pseudo, anyway. And it's and the Pseudepigrapha, it's called the Letter of Aristeus to Philocrates, and uh, it purports to be a letter um, written by a guy. The guy says, I'm a guy. Uh, an official of King Ptolemy II of Egypt, the second of the Ptolemies, obviously, in the 280s, I believe, BCE. And he says, I'm going to tell you how to translate the Bible into Greek is in Greek, and the, the purport of the whole thing is it's a very positive kind of, of uh, description. In fact, the reason it's called it pseudepigraphic is because it purports to be a guy praising the Torah, and, and scholars would say, really, it's written by a Jew, pretending to be a guy. It sounds more effective that way. That's what pseudepigraphic means. Um, and just listen to the end of the book. It's, it's a long, I mean, it's not long, long, but it's too long for me to describe in detail now. I just want to read the last part to compare and contrast it with what we find in the the Talmudic account, in the rabbinic account. And uh, one of the things that happens is that the king invites the rabbis or the scholars to Egypt very nicely, and they have this set of banquets. And in the banquet, in the set of banquets, they have a symposium, which is, they ask questions about wisdom. That's where we get our Seder Shal Pesach from. We we change it, but the original Zach is along those lines. And he said, "Ezogibar, Usher, e'zo and what should a king do? And what's the right way to do justice?" And a hundred and fifty other Greek philosophical questions. And the rabbis each time hit a home run. In other words, whoever wrote it, you know, they, they 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 give a very good Greek philosophy answer, faithful to the Torah, but written in an elegant way, and. Um, when he says over here, and at the end, after several days of his stuff and giving the king good aches advice, he's so happy the king that it says as follows near the end. When this man was finished, when the last rabbi was finished with his with his uh, philosophy, with his Aces, there was a burst of applause, ejaculations, jubilations for a considerable space, and then the king took a goblet and poured a toast in honor of all present. So the king drank a toast, um, to the seventy rabbis. In conclusion, he said, this is supposed to be King Ptolemy. The king said, the greatest blessings have accrued to me by your coming here, for I have profited greatly by the doctrine you have grounded for me with reference to kingship. Notice, all the aces you gave me how to be a good melech are he then, The king then said, three talents of silver, which is a lot of money, should be given to each one and also the slave who should hand it to him. That is so... <laughs> you guys out there in Richie Richland... Who are throwing fancy bar mitzvahs? You ain't going to top this one, fancy weddings. <laughs> they had slaves at that time, so to each guest, listen to this: each guest, a slave comes and hands you a wad of money, three talents of silver, and the slave comes along with it. Notice now you also got for free a slave. <laughs> yeah. that's what they considered high-end, uh, fancy schmancy three twenty-five hundred years ago, and uh, they all shouted their approval. Well, naturally, and the bank was filled for joy, and the king addressed himself to festivity unalloyed. No, then the king went into a party mode. If I have been tedious in this account, my dear Philocrates, the author is telling us, forgive me. I admire beyond measure the way in which the men on the spur of the moment famed responses which require long meditation. So these 70 rabbis thought quickly on their feet, since their interrogator had carefully pondered each question, while the respondents answered the questions one by one, and it seemed admirable to me and so on and so forth, okay? Now, after... Th- I'm going to skip a little bit. After three days, Demetrius, who was the king's officers, took the men with him and crossed the breakwater seven stadies long. So he went to an island in the harbor of Alexandria where they'll have sec- secusion, seclusion. He crossed the bridge and proceeded northly parts. Then he called a meeting in a mansion built by the seashore, magnificently appointed and in a secluded location. So he basically gave them all... A hotel, a free hotel for their uh, deliberations, and called upon the men to carry out the business of the translation, all necessary appliances having been well provided. So if you need dictionaries, if you need pen, paper, and so forth. And so they proceeded to carry out, meaning the Chachamim, according to this version of the story, proceeded to carry it out, making all details harmonized by mutual comparisons. Well, wow. So according to this, um, they did the translations, loft off in separate rooms, and they, they compared them to each other and came out with a joint nuzuch, the exact opposite of the Talmudic story, which is he wanted each guy to write the whole thing up and then they compared them to see if there were any discrepancies and miraculously there were none. Here, it was Mamash, like a translation operation like you do today. You get a whole bunch of people. Each one, you know, does a chilek or two chalakim or whatever. They compare and contrast. No I translated Vayidab HaShallam this way, you translated that way. He translated that way. And then we all come up with a joint nosoch, again, making all details harmonized by mutual comparisons. The appropriate result of harmonization was reduced to writing under the direction of Demetrius. So his was mamish like a literary enterprise. That Demetrius, who was the king's officers, you know, came up at the end with an agreed upon nosoch. Um, the sessions would last until the ninth hour and then they would break to take care of their bodily needs, all their requirements being lavishly supplied. So basically it was a 12-star hotel, you know. In addition, everything would appear for the king, Dorotheus arranged for them also for you instructed by the king. Every day they would come to court early in the morning, and when they made their salutation to the king, they departed their own place. So every morning they gathered as a group to come to the palace to greet the king and say, Shalom Aleichem, Boker Tov, and then they went, uh, you know, uh, then they went, to this palace, and then I'll tell you something really interesting. Before they undertook the process of translating the Torah, they did netil yadayim. you <clears throat> die. When they had washed their hands in the sea, as is the custom of the Jews, and offered prayer to God, they addressed themselves to the interpretation and clarification of um, of each passage. Uh, <laughs> so notice the Daven Chakras first, and and before the Daven Chakras, they wash, you know, you know what I mean, wash it in the ocean. You don't have a sink there, you know. I questioned them on this point why it was that they washed their hands before davening, and they explained to his witness that they had done no wrong since the hands are the organs of activity and such beautiful and holy spirit that they make all things symbols of righteousness and truth. Notice they cre- If this is true, if, then they gave a Greek, you know, philosophy bull answer, which is we wash our hands because the hands have done no wrong, you know, and, it's, it's a nice word, you know what I'm saying? It's a nice word. In general, this Hellenistic Judaism that you find in uh, these books written at this period or by Philo, they're not like wrong with them. They just give a, uh, a very PC spin to all the denim. Uh, thus, as we said before, they foregathered every to the spot, so delightful for its inclusion in clear light, and carried out their appointed task. And so it came that the work of transcription was completed in 72 days, as if this coincidence had been the result of a design. Notice there were 72 uh, Chachamim, and it was filled in 72 days. When the work was concluded, I'm almost finished, I think, yeah. And that's a couple pages, so I won't I won't, uh, give you the rest. Uh, if you're interested, you can just go online and look at the letter of Aristeas to Philocrates. Aristeas would be A-R-I-S-T-E-A-S. That'd be good enough. And especially read the last part, and you'll see an alternative version of the story, which was written around that time. Not exactly, but around that time. Okay? And, uh, you know, you know, just for the heck of it, I'll read one more paragraph um, because it's interesting. But that's it. Uh, then I'm going to close it down. When the work was concluded, Demetrius assembled the community of the Jews at the place where the translation was executed. Notice he called in the Jewish community of Alexandria, and he read it to the whole gathering the translators being present. So this is the first time you're hearing the art scroll translation into Greek. They received a great ovation from the community also, a lot of cheering, in recognition of the great service for which they were responsible. And they accorded Demetrius a similar reception and requested him to have a transcription of the entire Torah made and presented to their rulers. Meaning, give us, the Jewish community, a copy of your, the Greek translation. When the rolls had been read, the priests and the elders of the translators and some of the corporate body, which means the Kehillah, the leaders the people, rose up and said, inasmuch as the translation has been well and piously made, and is in every sense accurate, it is right that it should remain in its present form, and that no revision of any sort should take place. So in other words, this is now the official uh, Targum, as we would say. When all had agreed to what had been said, they begged that an imprecation be pronounced according to their custom. So then they made a Klullah, if anybody deviates from this translation, upon who should revise the text by adding or transposing anything which had been written down or by making any excision. And in this they did well, so that work might be preserved imperishable and, and unchanged always. So as I said before, goes on for a little bit more, but I made my point. So that's an example of a different take. They would not make a fast day. I, I, in Eretz Yisrael, they had a fast day. In Egypt... Maybe it was the opposite for all I know. In fact, it's possible, I'm just speculating now, this is just a guess, it's possible that the Chachamim in Israel would have tried to be not gyrus the whole thing, get it? Not be gyrus the whole thing. That's more their style. And saying, eh, Egyptian, a bunch of junk, we're not gyrus the whole thing. It's very yeshivish. However, I'm speculating now. However, the Jews in Egypt were like, oh, hi. And especially... They want to a kiss up to the king. The king was the one who fostered the whole idea. And so maybe the Jews in Egypt declared the eighth of Tavis a holiday. You know, no Tachnon. A holiday with sheva with, Odal with, uh, and parties, for all we know. And that so enraged or upset the rabbis in Israel. They said, not only do we disapprove of it being a party, we're to declare the Tainus. That sounds to me like a very plausible scenario, but it's just a guess on my part. I could be totally wrong. I'm just saying what I guess. So, the origin of the Eighth of Tavis in this particular regard is very, very interesting, it seems to me. Alright, with that, I want to conclude. Uh, As always, I want to thank Mishpachis Sefansky, who sponsors all the uh, Hewlett Podcasts, and of course, um, they are doing a uh, catalog, you know, auction, I think, in the near future. He's supposed to send me a copy over here, and I'll give you more information about that. If you're the type that's interested in these rare svarman, uh, and really interesting, last time they had an original writing from the Ramchal, I remember, and other stuff. So, uh, I'll keep you informed about that, but once again, thanks to Mishpacha Stefanski. I hope, maybe tomorrow or whenever, we'll find somebody who wants to sponsor the... Um, tower and then we'll call it a week. Until then, have a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.